Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. For those of, the, of you who were not in this morning's talk, welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Susanna Hellman, and I'm one of the curators of our Cook and the Pacific exhibition. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal, Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. This afternoon, we're privileged to hear from Victor Briggs, a Gambania Gamilaroi man whose research was inspired by a family story about indigenous Australian seafarers who sailed to Hawaii. Victor's research aimed to determine the extent of indigenous Australian seafaring in the Pacific and to provide a new perspective of indigenous culture to counter prominent European colonial history views. Victor's research explored oral histories from New Zealand and Hawaii and analysed rock paintings which depict innovative seagoing canoes. Please join me in welcoming Victor Briggs. Thank you, everyone. I'm a Goombanga Gamilaroi man and I hail from up northern New South Wales. I did some research at the University of New England on which I wrote a thesis called Canoeing Ancient Songlines. Today I would like to share with you this story, but before I begin this story, before I begin this story, I, I too would like to pay my respects to my elders, both past and present, to Ngunnawal and Nampri people who are the custodians of this country and also to the next generation of youth who are the future of tomorrow. The story is of reciprocated knowledge systems, a story of culture, an erudite culture that connects people, people who once networked and commu communicated with each other, a people who held intergenerational knowledge systems. This extraordinary culture is deeply rooted in environmental consciousness total avatar, connection to country, connection to mother, connection to both land and sea, connection to the metaphysical, reciprocated and altruistic, a culture submerged in deep ecology where the dream time and the metaphysical are one and the same. This is Australia's Aboriginal people, the world's first chemists, astronomers, botanists, herbalists, zoologists and explorers, Aboriginal culture is about astronomy, kinship systems, religion, rituals, ceremonies, languages, laws, totems, sustainability, spirituality, conservation and the environment, which reveals to us the nexus of what it means to be a cultured being. This slide shows two men walking in the Australian outback. This represents the image that most people have of Aboriginal people. But I want to tell you today that this is not only part of the story. You might be surprised to learn that Aboriginal people from Northern Australia were master navigators who traversed the Pacific Ocean. In fact, some historians who believe that Aboriginal people came here from elsewhere 
in the beginning consider them to have been the world's first serious sailors. There's a very important picture I want to show you to begin my conversation today. This piece of rock art comes from the Guion Guion series of paintings located in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. This artwork is some 17,000 years old and you can clearly see the four men in the canoe with three of the men holding paddles. What is striking about this canoe is its high stern and prow. Its design is for a vessel of pelagic deep sea ocean firing. Not far from this piece of rock art was found is another painting of Asiatic antlered deer. In Australia there is no native deer. So the story has travelled some hundred kilometres home from Indonesia where it was later painted on a rock formation to reveal those memories of indigenous exploration. The significance of this piece of art from the Guion Guion series is that Western historians have always insisted that Aboriginal people, people were never an ocean-going people. This painting shows us otherwise. In the 21st century, the old view is now being overturned by new research and studies about Indigenous Australia. This is a clearer picture of the Kimberley Guion Guion. From this, you can see a small keel at the rear to guide it through the ocean swells. During the Pleistocene, Australia and Tasmania were joined. There was a large lake in between, later called Lake Bass, named after Matthew Flinders' comrade and first mate, George Bass. Papua New Guinea was joined to Australia, connecting swamps and tidal zones, with a large lake there as well called Lake Carpentaria. The magpie geese continued their annual migrations from as far as New Guinea, around down around Lake Carpentaria, past East Arnhem Land, and back to New Guinea at later timelines. The Holocene had some massive environmental changes. The sea levels rose some 100 plus metres. The continental shelf went some 13 to 33 miles out to sea, which tells us when the sea levels rose, land went so many kilometres out to sea, where songlines today are still relevant, where story today still stand. Greater Australia was fertile, covered in vast ecosystems such as forests, bushlands, deserts, oceans, rivers, lakes and swamps. Large megafauna roamed here. Aboriginal people hunted these creatures and burned off the country. For thousands and thousands of years, Aboriginal people firestick farmed Australia, killing off life to bring on new life. Aboriginal people had always lived with canoes Aboriginal people lived off the land. What was on the land was theirs, and it was shared and reciprocated. Earliest European reports on Indigenous Australian canoe making, modifying their canoes from bark to dugouts with shared ideas, goes back to the written records of the 17th century. By early Europeans, around 1669 to 1763, by Dutch and Portuguese sailors, where they viewed multiple Macassan navigators, Torres Strait Islanders, and Papua New Guineans. Aboriginal people were able to quickly share canoe technology and it spread across Northern Australia. 
with dugout technology mainly spreading across the north of Australia, while bark canoe knowledge spread rapidly across the south of Australia. Macassan influences were very high due to intermarriages and inter-island seasonal trade. Rituals were performed when cutting down trees to make canoes. This involved ceremonies where all the men would dress up and dance and compel the spirit of the tree to find a new home. As this particular tree was specifically chosen to be cut down for canoe making for the benefit of the tribe or clan. With 17th century Macassar influence, Torres Strait influence and Papua New Guinea influence, Indigenous Australians' trade and economic systems improved. So did the networking and marriages. Cultural influences shifted right across the north of Australia, from the Kimberleys to Rockhampton. Double outrigger canoes were witnessed out at sea, island hopping from one, one island to the next. With the, with the new designs in canoe making, with modifications and lashings and even sails and paddles, Aboriginal people used the stars to navigate and they worked with the seasons at night time all around. Sydney Harbour canoes were witnessed on the ocean with fires lit aboard. Men were fishing at night and this was common right along the eastern seaboard. The canoes made trade possible. The canoe also made marriages possible, which then made the many kinships possible. Without canoes, these interactions and communications were never possible. People traded everything from spears and shields to ochre to all types of feathers for ceremonies and ethnobotanical knowledge uses in communities. Aboriginal people had to understand the trade winds. This observation took time and is from sitting down generation after generation watching the seasonal shifts in the weather. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Aboriginal people have watched the storms, winds, ocean swells and tidal surges. They knew when to moor a canoe when the storms were coming. Aboriginal people were masters at reading seasonal variations. When the north wind would come right after the southerly trades were finished. When highs were around and lows pointed out cyclone seasons. Bird behaviour and migrational patterns for flying both north and south. They knew when to plant certain plants at times of the year and when to fish at certain times of the year. This picture gives you an all around emphasis on how the trade winds operated. This picture shows you how the trade winds work in coordination with its opposite, with the north and south polar, with the earth slightly tilted on its side at 23.5 degrees, known as the obliquity of the ecliptic, giving us our four seasons. From southeasterlies you have northwesterlies and so forth. As a result, northeast and northwest at two times a year, while southeast and south southwest at certain times of year, every four to six months or so, 
the know-how of this reveals how Aboriginal people made return journeys according to the seasons, operating under systems at night using Polaris, the North Star, above the equator and the Southern Cross below the equator. The next couple of slides will explain this science. This slide shows us that once Indigenous people have reached the Humboldt Current, named after the German naturalist and explorer Alexander von Humboldt, off the coast of South America, they can catch the southwesterlies back across the equatorial belt at certain times of the year. If they had to sit it out on land or on an island, they had to do it and wait for those trade winds to come. So the equator, so the equator is in Sorry, the equator is important because it distinguishes if you are travelling above it or south of it. How to find this out? Polaris, the North Star, will be high on the horizon. If he is on the north, on the horizon, you can tell where to manoeuvre your vessel and make a direction for southwest, south-southwest or south-southeast. According... the vessel's fixture. So let's have a look at these pictures. The star system shows us Polaris is high in the night sky. You can see it on the third slide across. From this picture you can see the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. Both Earths are major and minor. If you're in the South Pacific and you see Polaris, you are near Micronesia and Polynesia. If you are below the equator in your night sky, it will show the Southern Cross. From this, you will know you are in southerly waters. Southerly waters means Polynesia and also Melanesia. From looking at this slide, Aboriginal people used all of these methods to understand and read the environment. At night time, using the star system, such as the Southern Cross, if you are below the equator, and Polaris to go north of the equator. The migration patterns of birds, birds tell you where land is and also fish. If the stars trickle, that tells you big storms are coming. Keep your boat moored on land and don't go deep sea voyaging. If you're at sea and a storm hits, don't go near land. Wait it out because of rocks and coastal shelves. When the day is sound, take advantage, but beware of tidal swells. This only comes with sound knowledge of the seasons and from what is taught from generation to generation as master navigators. So all these tools Aboriginal people use to safely island hop and continue on trade and cultural ties. This slide tells us how Indigenous people used forms of compasses to their advantage. So the night sky had names in culture for Polaris and the Southern Cross. Melanesians, Micronesians and Polynesians had the same star fixture names, but in different languages. From this third picture, you can see the boat is fixed at a north, northwesterly, so the boat is heading north on its port side. If it turns far right, it's on its starboard side. The stern is at its rear. The next picture shows us, shows us the North Star in all its beauty, big and bright. This fourth slide shows how people traded from Indonesia right across to Tonga and Fiji. This is a trade route where marriages have taken place. Chickens and pigs were traded, as well as canoes traded. 
The next picture is the Southern Cross far in the night sky. This slide shows a vessel's trajectory. At certain times of the night, it moves according to winds and ocean currents. When the navigator uses the language of magnitudes, he can tell when certain constellations pop up at different time periods. Here is an example. Here you have the Southern Cross. When you look at the cross, Crux, Gacrox, Mimosa, Pelita and Acrox, you can see where the meridian line goes and meets up with the pointers of Alpha Centura and Hader. The line of each correspond in the middle which gives us the southern pole. From here you can go down the middle and you have a, a southern trajectory. From here, when the vessel moves across the ocean, he sees, he sees stars pop up on his journey and at, at first there is a magnitude, then a second magnitude, then a third magnitude and so forth. So as you can see, each picture, they're like chapters. So in a time period of six to eight hours during the night, there could be five constellations in one chapter. So then you've gone to the next chapter, which are magnitude slash chapters. So during a night's journey, you may, pay, you may come across 13 constellations, which tells you how far, how far your... Um, how far it is where you're going to get to, your, to that point. So the magnitudes, when you view them as chapters, it's easier to understand um, um, reading, the, reading astronomy at night time and even across land. It's also used on land as well. Constellations can vary, such as Orion and Pleiades, but furthermore, he can tell exactly where his vessel is according to those magnitude of stars. Song lines and travel made Aboriginal people deeply religious. From religion, it explains existence and it regulates behaviour. Dreaming stories are mapping stories. Religion brought on, its, on strength Courage, determination and will. Why? Because the ocean was full of many fears. Large sea creatures, whales and sharks and monsters of every sort. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for many thousands of years have continued to follow in the footsteps of their ancestors along paths called song lines across the lands and the seas of Australia. One academic Carsten continues by saying that song lines interact with each other, weaving a dense mapping of both the earth and the sea. These pathways are mirrored by sky, by sky song lines, allowing people to travel, travel vast distances and highlighting the deep connection they have to earth and sea. This picture shows us the connection between religion and canoeing. The picture shows an ancestor embracing a sacred vision or dreaming. Macassan traders toed and froed the Southern Pacific in their prows. 
And one of their main stops was in Australian waters for sea cucumbers called trepang. Macassans were master navigators, astronomers, traders and ethnobotanical knowledge holders. Macassans were seen travelling in, in Micronesian and Melanesian waters which showed the intricate kinship systems between different peoples. They married into Aboriginal people. They would leave their children in places like East Arnhem Land and Groot Island to be initiated in culture and be picked up on the next trade season. Macassans spoke Papuan and Aboriginal languages. This picture shows us the visual art performed after seeing Macassan prowls. Shell middens and sea slugs that were harvested annually. You can see the shell midden in the middle there with a circle and the guy sitting down painting what he witnessed after he witnessed the Macassan prowl. Melanesians were master navigators, story holders, oceanographers, teachers, astronomers, traders, and also seafarers. A double-hulled Matuan Lakatoi canoe designed for deep ocean firing. Its purpose was traded into island voyaging. I like the sails, it's very distinct for, the, for that area. Here are some more pictures of double-hulled canoes with modifications in storage. Micronesians are very important in this story. Micronesians especially an old elder named Hippo. He was responsible for the cultural renaissance throughout Polynesia today, which reintroduced ancient canoeing skills and indigenous navigation taught to the local peoples again, which was in initially lost due to past colonial impacts within the South Pacific. According to David Lewis, he believes if it wasn't for the Micronesians, they would have lost most of their star knowledge and navigational knowledge. Today, Polynesians do annual runs from Tahiti back to Hawaii, thanks to Hippo from the Caroline Island chain of Micronesia. Polynesians are a seafaring people. These were our neighbours. And it's in their genetic it's it's in their genetics. Island hopping is a way of life for most Polynesian people. They were master navigators. They too were traders and astronomers. They were knowledge holders and teachers. All the cultures around Oceania and the Southern Pacific use the trade routes. They also use the star systems.
they had the know-how of their ancestors who had come before them. They are, they are the traditional story holders. Sailing and navigation was an art form. It truly was a way of life for Indigenous people, not only in Australia, but right across the Southern Pacific. Yari Yulandalanya Gambandinanya. I'm Victor Briggs. Thank you for listening. Please join me in thanking Victor again for that fascinating presentation. We do have time for some questions from the audience. Please wait for a microphone to be brought to you um, before asking your questions. Um, we might just have to wait for the microphones. I think we've... Um, <laughs> um, just one moment. We'll just have a short interlude. So, anyone have any questions for Victor? Yes, um, let me just come down the front. Um, just, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Victor, for a fascinating talk. I was very interested in the map with all the, um, the lines of, of travel between the different continents. And I'm wondering how far north the Aboriginal people ventured in their craft. Archaeologists found Australasian DNA in the Okinawan Islands that were not of uh, mongoloid nature. So it shows the, with those, I'll just go back. From that map. Yeah, and it shows you, according to the seasons again, you can go right around the top and come back around. But then again, in that timeline from the Holocene to the Pleistocene, sea levels were a lot different. So, so you could go at different timelines. You could go north or come back through the, through the equatorial belt and straight up like the Polynesians did with, with their annual runs to Tahiti, to Hawaii, and back and forth. But also that um, DNA was also found in South America, in um, places like Tierra del Fuego and really? Brazil. Yeah, it changes, changes things. Thank you. Victor, thank you. I just... I guess the question is the extent to which this knowledge that you're presenting to us, which I find fascinating, is recovered knowledge or whether there is, whether there is currently knowledge of this history 
amongst Northern Australian Aboriginal people. You're saying the, the knowledge, is there knowledge in, up in the north? I'm, I'm asking, yeah. Yeah. Yes, in Grid Island, all around Yongu country, all around uh, the Northern Territory, dugout canoe technology, uh, the Torres Straits, um, the intermarriages between people from Ingenu uh, to, to the um, to TI and back to um, Badu and Saibai, they're all con intric intricately connected. And a relative of mine, uh, parents owned an IGA on Badu, and so, again, they lived off the ocean, so they had to go out and catch turtles and dugong. And it was a, it's everyday, it's everyday life, using using canoes to manoeuvre. And that's an old. It goes back. And the and people were seen right down in, to Gladstone, in canoes. And these are reports from um, early Europeans. Flinders himself, when he charted the country, he came across canoes that were far out to sea, 57 k's or so. Just not much has been written on that, on that history. But you've got to remember too, in, in, the, in the timeline, you have um, transportation and exploration vessels. You've got um, Napoleonic soldiers returning from those wars. So all the, um, all the early exploration vessels that were around taking prisoners or Look, the exploration vessels, they were, we had Confederate vessels um, looking for whale oil, there was whalers, sealers, there was so much going on in the South Pacific during these timelines. Thank you, Victor. Um, as I understand it, the last sea level rise was quite significant, about 120 metres. And also, as I understand it, it all happened in a fairly short period of time, maybe six, 7,000 years, maybe a bit longer. So is there anything in the storytelling that specifically tells us it must have changed protocols and lifestyles, um, ways of doing things, um, so is there anything in the storytelling that relates to that, how life changed? Well, not so much life, but procedures. From the, from the colonisation, culture changed right there and then. Um, the... Those peoples that lived around Botany Harbour, La Perouse, who were... Fifteen years ago? Yeah. How did it change? That, that too would have pushed on uh, exploration for Aboriginal people. Why is that? Yeah, because the sea level's rising. So if you look at Coffs Harbour, for instance, the sea level's rising there. Did mob assimilate back into 
tribes behind them, clan estates and whatnot, or did they take on ocean faring because of the, um, their cultural essence and story in that country, but now they've lost it due to sea levels rising. So there's a possibility that took on seafaring as well. Does that answer your question? Hi, thank you very much for your talk. Um, in some contexts, we distinguish Aboriginal peoples from Torres Strait Islanders. Um, and I noticed that you haven't made that distinction. And I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about your choice. The connection with? Yes, why you've either chosen to exclusively study um, Aboriginal people and not Torres Strait Islanders, whether Torres Strait Islanders are subsumed. Like, there's a question in my mind that... I'm glad you asked that question, because my... How this tweaked my interest to research this. My uncle, Tim Edwards, um, he's an evangelist. He was in Hawaii, and he met some elders over there. Its story is no different to Thor Heidel's or, or Tim Severin, who wrote The Brendan Voyage. And the elders from Hawaii told him that many, many generations ago, indigenous seafarers traveled over there on the trade winds and contributed to resources and, and helped them with materials and, and vice versa. And as a result of that, they gave them an island to stay on. And so unbeknownst to my uncle, that was gonna be my thesis topic. So it, it tweaked something within me to, to research that, and here I am today. And so when you look at Thor Heidel's Kentucky expedition, when he met that, when you, everyone had seen the Kentucky, when he met that old elder, that tweaked the interest in him to want to sail from, from Peru across to Tahiti and also to Australia. And so then you look at Tim Severin, when he wrote The Brendan Voyage, he found that information at one of the one of the libraries in, in England, and so he went back and researched Irish history, the Irish history of monks that built um, vessels that before Columbus's time, and they made it to Newfoundland, which then changes history when you think about who first found the Americas in the European spotlight. There's a lot to think about there. Thanks so, thanks so much for your talk, Victor. I found it really interesting. Um, I was particularly interested in the uh, the, bark, uh, the cave painting of the uh, the canoe with the with um, the keel. And could you just tell us a little bit more about that and and about the uh, deer uh, painting nearby, and if there were, were any other um, paintings that relate to that? The record says it's 17,000 years old. It's up in the Kimberleys. Um, an exp uh, Graham Walsh, uh, what can I say about his title? Was he an explorer or, um, or native, he worked with native na national parks? He came across this, this piece of art and, uh, and so he, he challenged 
that it didn't come from Aboriginal people. He said it came from another group of people who colonised Australia, which then the argument can challenge Indigenous um, uh, colonisation of the country, saying that another group did it. So, but then it was overruled in the High Court and saying that it's, it's Indigenous, it belongs to Aboriginal people. And so it's, is, it would make you think um, you're going to get the, the bias and, you know, that's where critical thinking comes in. And so it favoured the courts in that manner. Uh, the antler deer, it shows you, it just like when you walk around Sydney Harbour and you see, um, or even in Narrabeen, where you see all the depictions of um, European vessels that Aboriginal people remembered and took them back 20 k's or so and painted and inscribed them on rocks or painted them using ochres. And so what's interesting about that deer, I don't have a picture of it, sorry, but I would love to have shown that to you today. It would have been really interesting to yeah. see it. And, and I'm just also wondering, were there, were there ever animals depicted nearby? In that no placental hoofed animals, mm. because that's why the topsoils were, were pristine. Placental hoofed animals would have ruined the rivers and creeks and, and places where the yams grow. And um, Yeah, there's a bit more to that when it comes to ethnobotany. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> so much. All the other animals were, were padded, padded like kangaroos and... Thanks, Victor. For a long time, um, we've been in a state of a strange denial about Indigenous history and Indigenous capability. Um, axes made here in Canberra were traded as far north as Cape York in some sort of commercial arrangement, but we're, we're not dealing with people who were capable of, of commercial arrangements. Uh, in, a, in a traditional European sense, according to the history books. So the, the history books don't touch this stuff very much either. Uh, my question isn't specifically about that, it's about the, the size of that object, of the canoe, and ocean-going. Both the Brendan voyage and, and Toa Heidel's um, Contiki were both quite large rafts, quite, uh, quite big boats in a sense. Um, this looks to be quite small, and I wonder, is, is there any evidence of ocean-capable vehicles um, in either the, the painted record or archaeological record that might uh, help us to understand that better? Yeah, there is um, catamaran double... There are um, double-hole catamaran vessels up in uh, TI that can seat at least 27 people plus, and these were... These were um, People movers mm. moving. It's clearly, the Maori did it to, the, to New Zealand. I mean, those people come in from Polynesia, don't they? Well, you look at the kingship systems mm. in Ti. There's Samoan, Fijian, Tongan. Mm. Everybody were touring and throwing and trading and swapping. Mm. And but that was somewhere that was cut off. Mm. Thank you. Um, so thank you very much for your questions. Um, I'd just like to say a few further words. Um, Cook in the Pacific 
would not be possible without the support of individuals, communities, cultural institutions, corporate partners, foundations and the Australian Government. The National Library of Australia acknowledges the generous contribution of First Nations peoples who have allowed their culture, experiences and voices to be heard throughout the exhibition. This concludes our second lecture for the day and I hope um, you've enjoyed yourselves. I certainly have. For those who have not already done so, please feel free to take a look at our free exhibition, Cook in the Pacific, and Tarpa exhibition next door, both on the ground floor, and please do visit Beauty Rich and Rare on level four. I'd also like to invite you to attend our third talk for the day, delivered by Dr. James Hunter and Kieran Hostie from the Australian National Maritime Museum. They've been involved in the search for and recent discovery of the endeavor. If you're interested, you can meet us back here at 2pm. Please join me in thanking Victor for this afternoon's fabulous presentation. <laughs>